Now getting into the message here, uh, there's one thing in my household, there's a phrase that it comes up a lot and I don't really know what I think about it whenever it comes up. And the phrase is this, daddy, close your eyes. So I have three children and uh, the one-year-old doesn't speak, but my six-year-old and my soon-to-be three-year-old will often pull this line on me, daddy, close your eyes. And I never know exactly what's going to happen. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's one of my children wanting to surprise me with something. Sometimes it's one of my children wanting to hide something from me. And so this phrase, daddy, close your eyes, I have to sit back and I have to think, what's the motivation behind this? Why are they saying this? And depending on what the motivation is, makes me wonder, is this something I should be nervous about? Should I be looking for something broken or something messy? Or is this going to be a nice surprise? Or at least a nice surprise for them. And when it comes to a person's motivation, how you understand their motivation can totally uh, alter how you understand what they're actually doing. You could have two people do the exact same thing, but if one person's coming at it from a different motivation than the other person, it changes how you see it. Even things as simple as, as generosity, if someone is giving away food, but they strike you as, you know, their motivation is very bad. You're, you're wary of that. You're nervous about even taking a gift from a person like that. If you can tell that their motivation is not good, that it makes you nervous. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, we've been talking about Jesus. And we've been talking about this idea of just looking at all the things that Jesus did and uh, learning to, to love him in a new way. Uh, we, we read this, this scripture from Revelation where uh, the Spirit is talking to the churches and he says, to this one particular church, he says, you know, you do all the right things, but I have this one thing against you. They've forgotten the love that you have at first. And so it's my heart that we don't forget this love that we have for Jesus that we had first. And so I wanted to take some time and go through and, and talk about Jesus and and hopefully put a new spin and a new perspective on it for people to help us understand why it is that we see what we see and why it is we believe what we believe and why it makes a difference. <clears throat> and so the first time we, the first uh, message in this series, we talked about the mission that Jesus had, what he was coming to earth to accomplish. And in the second week, we talked about the method that he used, not just uh, in terms of going through the cross, but how he approached people how he responded to, to sin and brokenness and et cetera. And this, this week, we wanted to talk about this idea of motivation. Why is it that Jesus did the what? What was his motivation behind it? Is it something where we can say, this is a trustworthy motivation? Or is it something where we don't understand and we're a little bit leery about it and we don't really get it? So I wanted to go through and just talk about this why that we see through the Bible about uh, why Jesus is doing what he's been doing. And I wanted to start off first. And I got asked in Bible college this question that what did Jesus come to teach? That there's a whole bunch of things that he came to do. But what would you say if you had to summarize Jesus's method or message in one phrase, what would you say? And we all had different opinions of what it was as Bible college students. But the professor just pointed us back to this, this one scripture, and it's Matthew 4, 17. We'll have it on the screen, and it says this. From that time on, and this was the, it says here, from that time on, and the context here is that Jesus has just gone through the 
temptations in the desert. He's just called his disciples to himself. And in this context of he's called his disciples, he's beginning his ministry on earth. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so this is, this is Jesus's first thing that he's doing here. This is Jesus's uh, reason that he came. This is a message that he came to teach. So there's a lot of stuff that he's trying to accomplish, but that this is his primary message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I want to unpack this word repent a little bit. Because we don't often completely understand what it's saying. This is a very churchy word. We say it a lot, but do we really, truly understand what it means? So I want to just take a couple minutes and unpack this word repent. Now this word in the Greek basically means change your life based on a complete change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. And it had a sense in it of turning around to face another direction. I heard someone say, uh, repentance is like turning 360 degrees. And if you're a math person, that means you're just facing the same way you were before, because that's a circle. It's 180 degrees, turning around, facing a new direction, and changing our lives based on a new understanding and, a, and new thoughts and a new attitude concerning sin and righteousness. And so the Bible is clear what the starting point of this concept of repentance is. And this is another scripture from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10. I'm going to jump through a bunch of scriptures today because I think it's really important to get this point that we're going through. So it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance, there's that word, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And so the the picture that the Bible is putting together, this idea of repentance, is this, is that it starts first with God. This verse highlights it, where it says, godly sorrow brings repentance versus worldly sorrow. So it starts with this idea of God, and it leads to salvation, that is a relationship with God, and that it doesn't leave any regret. And this is a powerful thing to understand about Jesus' motivation that if his primary message that he's bringing is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, then we need to understand what this word repent means. And so here's a, here's a working definition of what I want to offer you. Repentance isn't a self-inflicted punishment. It's a God-sustained reorientation. And what I mean by that is that when Jesus is calling us to repent, it's not a rebuke that he's throwing down on us and saying, you need to repent, you're a sinner, and that we need to look at ourselves, and we need to have regret, and we need to have pain and guilt. The Bible's saying, you know, godly sorrow, that, that regret that God wants to see, leads to salvation, but it removes regret. It removes that, that sense of like, oh, I've done something so terrible, look at me. It focuses on God. And so the repentance that Jesus came to preach, the repentance that Jesus came to teach us, starts with this idea of it brings us into a relationship with him and removes regret. It removes this self-inflicted punishment that we put on ourselves because we're broken. It's a God-sustained reorientation of our perspective. But the second part is this, because the message that, that Jesus came to teach isn't just repent. 
It's repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it's not just the kingdom of heaven is near. There's something with the language I want you to understand here. It's a statement of intention. Jesus is saying we need to let God reorient our perspective because the kingdom is coming to us. How many kingdoms do we know can move like that? This is the way God's kingdom works. So God wants to come and he wants to help reorient our perspective towards him because he's bringing his kingdom to us. And that there's a part of this where Jesus is saying, you know what, you've been trying so hard to make this work yourself. But God is bringing his kingdom to bridge that gap on your behalf. So what's the complete picture of what Jesus is saying here? What's his, his root underlying message that he's trying to teach through his life? And it's this. Jesus is saying, I have come to reorient you to a kingdom that has come near to you, not to make you feel terrible. And this is, this is the basis of a lot of people and their understanding of repentance is that it's full of regret. It's full of feeling bad for our problems. And it makes sense why we would do that. If we're ever in a relationship with someone and we do something that hurts that person or we fail that person, there's regret, there's sorrow, there's that pain of understanding that our problems have caused something to somebody else. But Jesus' primary motivation here isn't to let us sit in that point. It's to move us past regret, move us past that grief that comes from failure. And he asks us that question, okay, so what do we need to do to reorient you next? And that's an incredibly important thing to understanding why we should love Jesus so much. I think as Christians, we don't hold this idea in a high enough regard. We don't understand that however many areas, however many ways that we look at our own failures, we look at our own problems, or we look at the problems of other people, and we say, you know, with all this stuff that's going wrong, obviously Jesus isn't going to stick around if that keeps going on. You know, how many of us worry about driving the spirit out of our churches because of the difficulties that come from our imperfections and our problems? How many ways do we worry about if we get bad enough, if we have enough problems that the Holy Spirit and Jesus, that they're just going to abandon us? And I don't want him to downplay the importance of us continually trying our best to walk towards God, to continually striving towards a better relationship and a better lifestyle. But I think Jesus comes at our brokenness. He comes at our pain and our problems with a different motivation. And that I really want to explore that. I really believe this key truth when it comes to having a relationship with Jesus and it comes to having a connection to the Spirit, that we miss the Spirit not when we struggle. We don't miss the Spirit because we're having a problem. Because He loves us too much for that. We miss the Spirit when we refuse to acknowledge Christ coming out to find us and rejoicing in our return. And how many parables about the lost does Jesus have to tell us before we understand this? How many ways does he have to reframe this picture for us before we understand how hard he's trying to work past our problems and still connect with us? 
that we have this, this parable called the parable of the lost sheep. And I'll read it here. It's in Luke 15. A lot of these are rapid fire through Luke 15. And so it says this, verses 3 to 5. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And so Jesus is telling this parable, but he's telling it about him. He's trying to remind people, you know what? There are lost people out there, and this is how I react. I don't look at that sheep that's wandered away and say, you know what? He's caused a problem. I'm not going to bother with him. I go out and I try to find that sheep. I keep looking until I find it. And when I find it, I joyfully put it on my shoulders and I bring it home. That's how God responds to our failures and our problems. How he responds to the way that we often lose the path is he goes looking for us. And when he finds us, he is joyful. And it doesn't stop at that. He tells another story after that. The parable of the lost coin, Luke 15, verses 8 to 10. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so Jesus is trying to drive this point home again and again. He's saying, that you look at your failures and your problems and you think that I reject you because of that. But Jesus is saying, no, if you're lost, I rejoice in going out to find you and bringing you back. That I look hard. In this parable, the woman that lost the coin, she's tearing apart her house. If you've ever lost something really important, you tear your house apart till you look for it. I lost the keys to our van. And I must have turned my house upside down five times looking for it. It's not something where I'd go, eh, I lost it, whatever. It's something that's really important. And so I spent a lot of time looking. And Jesus is trying to remind us here that your, your problems and your failures don't cause me to reject you. They cause me to search for you. And that when God finds us, even in our brokenness, he says, you know, come back with me. And he rejoices in the fact that he's found us. And maybe you're thinking, oh, you know what, these verses are just about people who unintentionally stray away. About the people who never knew Jesus and now they've heard the message and God's drawn them back in again. What if we're actively disobeying? What if we're having this conversation of, of what it means to obey God and we don't know if we're on the right track? Where does that fit in with all of this? Well, for that, we have the parable of the lost son. And that's the next one that Jesus tells. And I'm going to read the end of it because it's a bit of a longer story. But the point of the story is that uh, there's this father and he's got two sons. And the one son is, is actively doing what he can to, to break this relationship with his father. At one point, he asks for his father to just cash out his inheritance, even before the father's died. He's asked them to cash out his inheritance so he can have the funds and he can leave and he can go live a wild lifestyle somewhere else. And waste the money away. And the son eventually ruins his life going through this experience. And maybe that's where we feel like we might be. Maybe that's where you've had that kind of life where it's like, this wasn't unintentional. I've done things that have drawn me away from God. I've made choices that God would not be happy with. 
And Jesus is telling this parable about us. He's saying, you know what, there's this father who had a lost son. And it wasn't just he didn't know where the son was. It wasn't just he lost him one day. The son actively left. He actively avoided this relationship with his father. And the story ends with this. The son has hit rock bottom and he's decided to come back to his father and repent. He's decided to come back to his father and and own up for what he's done. And this is Luke 15, verses 21 to 24. And so the son comes to his father and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is a message we often bring to God. We say, you know what? I've done so many wrong things. I'm not worthy for this relationship with you. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Do we believe that this is how God responds to our problems? That when he sees our brokenness, when he sees the ways that we miss the mark, that we miss the turnoff, that he seeks us out and he finds us in our pain and our problems. And he says, bring the best robe that we have and put it on him. Bring the fattened calf. Let's have a celebration because we're back together. Jesus is telling us again and again and again and again that there's no way we can struggle. There's no way we can stray. There's no problem that we can come up against where he will abandon us because his motivation is love. We could commit every sin. We could walk to the furthest extents of the the earth away from him. And the moment, the second that we turn back and we speak to him, Jesus is joyfully right there to receive us and to bring us back into a relationship with God. And if your concept of following Christ involves him abandoning you because of something you've done, you have no idea of the depth of Christ's love and mercy. I want you to understand that. That if you think Jesus' love is finite enough that there's a limit to it, you have not seen the depth of it. There's so many verses in the Bible that just drive this point home over and over again. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 5 says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, and it is by grace that you have been saved. And so the key word in this verse is, is even when. So it's saying, because of God's great love for us. So starting off, because of his love, not because of anything that we've done to earn it or deserve it, but because of his love and his rich mercy, he's made us alive even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's not saying God loves you even when you struggle. It's not saying God loves you even when you're imperfect. Both of those things are true. But this verse is saying that in your your transgressions in your problems that brought you to death that God brings you life in that context that when we've already gone so far that we've broken that relationship with God that in that context because of his great love for us and his rich mercy he brings us life and that's why they call it grace that Jesus's motivating 
desire is this great love for us, this rich mercy for us, and this constant desire to bring us back into a relationship. And how many times does God have to remind us of this before we really, truly accept it? I can keep going on through Bible verses about this. Romans 8, verses 37 to 39. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are more than conquerors because of him who loved us. Not because of him who judged us and threw down on our failures and rejected us until we could make ourselves better. That we are more than conquerors because of his love. And that this verse goes through great pains to, to illustrate the fact that there is nothing that can ever separate you from the love of God. So if nothing can keep us away, what causes us to feel away? Because that's a reality that a lot of us face. Especially when we, when we start seeing our own problems, we start seeing our own brokenness, we start seeing all the ways that we feel inadequate before God. And we can often feel that sense of being away from God. And where does that come from? Because we have this experience, but we see what the Bible is teaching. So where's the connecting ground? Well, if our own sinfulness can't drive the Spirit away, if our own struggles don't prevent Jesus from joyfully accepting us back, then where does it come from when we feel God's absence in our struggles? And there's a lot of answers to this question, and it's a complex issue, but I believe many of the realities boil down to this simple truth, that we most often feel the absence of the Spirit when we look at our own failures, we look at our own problems, but then when Jesus looks at us and he sees the filth and the failure and the brokenness, and Jesus says, I am always, always here for you, and I love you, and I want you back. That Jesus responds with that message, and then we respond with, no, you don't. Look at me. That when we are the lost child who stands before Christ and says, I am not worthy to be considered your child. Just like in the parable of the lost son. We look at our problems, we look at all the ways that we failed and we're broken, and when we stand before God, we say, I'm not worthy to be called your child. But we won't listen and see the great joy that he has in bringing us back, in reestablishing that relationship with us, no matter what has happened. And so when you think that your righteousness is powerful enough to bring you into the presence of God, you also think that your sinfulness is powerful enough to drive God's great love away from you. And the truth is, is that you don't stand in God's presence because you're good enough. God doesn't accept you because you've earned your way there or because you've done enough good things that he can now stand to be around you. God loves you deeply. When you think that you're in God's presence because of your goodness, you grossly overestimate your own goodness and you vastly underestimate God's goodness. That you are welcomed by him simply because he loves you. Just the way you are.
that he wants better for you and he wants to see your life get better every day, but that it's his love and his grace and his mercy that brings you into his presence, not any sense of goodness or righteousness on your part. Isaiah once said in Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God, not our sinfulness. That's true, but the verse is saying even the very best parts of ourselves, all the ways that we act in accordance with the ways that God wants us to live, that the very best part of us is like filthy rags before God. That's how powerful our goodness is, is that it can't even approach God's goodness. Now, let me tell you, this verse, Isaiah 64, 6, this, this concept of filthy rags, a lot gets lost in the English translation. Let's just say the direct translation of that phrase is a lot stronger. And so here's what I want you to understand, is that all the times when you felt the Spirit, all the times that you felt that connection with God, if you've had a relationship with Him, and, and you've been through times where you felt His Spirit, and you felt His presence, and you felt accepted by Him, and maybe you're not in a time like that, or maybe you've had a time of what feels like dryness, that those times that you had before had nothing to do with your own goodness. It had nothing to do with your own righteousness. It's not like you can do enough good to earn your way into God's presence. It was because God loved you deeply and mercifully, and you turned to him, and you truly believed that he received you. You trusted his character, and you understood it. And you said, I know that you welcome me in. But we are not ever going to be good enough for our righteousness to prompt the Spirit to come. We're just not that good. That God looked at us and he saw the dirt and the filth and the brokenness of our sinful nature and he came into our hearts anyways because he loves us. So stop telling the Spirit that he won't come into your life the way you are. I want you to hear me here. Yes, the Bible says that God's Spirit has no fellowship with darkness. It talks about how much God's holiness is important and how much living a good life is important. But this is a testament to the amazing and all-encompassing power of Christ's great love for us. That even when we can't earn our way there, even when we represent all the bad things in the world that God is working out of us, that he still loves us so much that he welcomes us in. The fact that God... God's presence can't tolerate the presence of sin, doesn't tell us that we're not welcome. It tells us how greatly that Jesus defeated death and sin and the grave when he died for us. And that we were welcomed back into God's eternal arms. And this is John 3.16 right here, that so many of us, if you've had a relationship with God, You've memorized this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Jesus isn't motivated by our goodness. He isn't present because we're righteous enough and absent because we haven't done a good enough job. He isn't motivated by us rubbing together our disgusting rags and calling that righteousness. There's nothing we could do to scrub our hearts clean enough to make space for Jesus. And that's why Jesus' motivation to come into our hearts is so unbelievably important. That Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom because he loves us. 
And our sinfulness should never convince us how much God has rejected us. That our problems should never hold it over us and say, you know what, you're broken, obviously God doesn't love you. That our sinfulness, our brokenness, our consciousness that there's something wrong, our consciousness that there's a brokenness inside of us and there's pain and that we don't feel like we're doing things good enough for God, that that consciousness should remind us just how much God loves us because he still welcomes us. And I can't say this enough. If you think that there's something that you can do to cause Jesus to want to leave you, you haven't even begun to experience how good God really is. I wonder how many churches out there struggle and flounder because people are convinced that their problems are enough that the Spirit leaves and goes, forget this place, this place isn't good enough for me. You know, is God so small that we could ever make a place good enough for Him? The Word calls the entire earth His footstool. Could you build a good enough footstool for God that He's going to go, you know what, that's pretty good, I'm going to live there. Even with the temple and the way that He designed it, He didn't dwell in the temple because it was good enough. He dwelled in the temple because He loved His people. So how do we respond to this? This part's easy. And so if you don't have a relationship with God, that if you're sitting and listening to this, and this is all drastically new information to you, and that you've never heard it phrased like this, how much Jesus welcomes us no matter what, just because he loves us. Now's a great time to start in a relationship with him. Because there's literally nothing stopping you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've said. Not only is God's love greater than your problems, but God rejoices in even this experience of drawing closer to you, of having a better relationship with you, that every step closer we get to him, he rejoices. All you literally have to say is, God, I know you love me, and I know I'm not good enough. I want to have a relationship with you, and I know that you want to have one with me too. And I think that last part is really important because we try to count ourselves out, and Jesus left no space for that. He says that his, his love and his mercy is too great to let our problems drive us away again. That the cross accounted for all of that. That when Jesus died on the cross, it covered all of our sins now and forever. And so when Jesus looks at us, he has great love. He doesn't see the problems and the brokenness. That he welcomes us in. And then when we're present, he works on us to help us to become better people. He helps us to repent and reorient our lives to live for his kingdom. But he starts with love. He doesn't start with a standard of saying, you have to be this good before I'm coming in. He says, I love you so much that no matter where you are, I want to come in right there. And so if you think that it's impossible for God to love someone like you, if you think that you've done too much, that it's just not possible for someone like God, who is so good to love someone like you, who is so not, then I want you to sit back, kick up your feet, and watch God do the impossible. Because that's exactly what he wants to do. And he is powerful enough to do it. But maybe you've had a relationship with God. Maybe you feel like it's on the rocks. Maybe you've been missing that connecting piece. 
you've been missing that that fellowship with God, and maybe you feel like your struggles have counted you out of God's plan. Maybe you feel like the problems or your weaknesses have have driven the spirit out because how could he accept somebody like you, someone so broken? Because, you know, when you read the Bible, it's just full of people who were able to follow God because of their own goodness. It's not like Abraham was a liar, Jacob was a cheater, David was an adulterer, Jonah ran away from God, Moses and Paul were murderers, Peter had a temper, Paul was a murderer, said that already, it's on my list. Martha was a worrier, Thomas doubted. These are all imperfect people. I'm convinced that part of the reason God works through the imperfect people and the broken people is to show how good he is, that we have no ground to stand on and say, I brought myself here. That God wrote most of the New Testament through a man who was a murderer. And I know people, I've heard the story of some people who were murderers and they became Christians and they served God joyfully. And that when they die, they will stand before him in heaven and he will say, welcome my child and he will have great joy. So what do we do? It's simple. We say, God, I know you love me and I know I'm not good enough. I want to have a relationship with you and I know that you want to have one with me. And if you don't think you're good enough for God to use you, you're in great company with every single person except Jesus that has ever come before in the history of the world that no one has ever been good enough. That God goes, okay, that's a person that I, that is good enough that I'm going to enter in because they're good. That in every way that God has ever connected with us, it's always been because he loves us. And that our problems can never drive that wedge in there. So wherever you're at, maybe you don't have this relationship with God and you want to, or you have this relationship with God and you feel like your brokenness has drawn you out of it. That God has has left you because of it. Neither one of these can keep us from a relationship with God. That we need to understand that he rejoices at the idea of being able to reconnect with us. Even if he's done it a hundred times, even if he's done it a thousand times, the thousand and first time that we turn back to him, there's great joy and celebration. So I want you to pray with me right now and I want you to take this line I want you to take this perspective on God's motivation that everything he does for us is out of love. That his response to all of your problems, all the ways that you've you've disobeyed him or all the ways that you've missed the plan that he has for you, that his very next step for you is motivated out of a deep love and joy to be reconnected with you. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you love us so much. We thank you that no matter what we've done, that we can't drive you away because you are so good. And so we repent of all the ways that we've told you that you're just not present because of our problems. We repent of all the ways that we've told you that you just won't work in us because we're not clean enough. We know that your goodness is so great and your love is so great that you will work in us no matter where we're at. And so, God, help us to reorient our perspective towards you. Help our our sorrow at our pain to lead to salvation and leave no regret, as your word says. Help us to get to that point where we're willing to look past our problems at your goodness, at your face, 
and say, God, I know you're here and I know you want to have a relationship with me. And so if there's people out there who don't have a relationship with you and they're saying this for the first time, God, we just pray that you'd make yourself real to them in an awesome and in a powerful way right now. And I just pray if there's anyone out there who has a relationship with God, but they feel like uh, they feel your absence, help them to understand that it's, it's in their perspectives and that you always, always welcome people back. Uh, the minute that they turn back to you, God. And so I just pray that you'd help those people to just turn to you and see the joy and love on your face and just enter back into that relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen.